Well, I know this is somewhat the modern-day equivalent of torture. We've got the food sitting in there in the other room, so we're going to try to keep this relatively short tonight, but let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. Thank you for even all those boys and girls that are here today and even those much older boys and girls that were singing in the rest of the auditorium. Just thank you that you've given us each other to live life with and that we can have, by your grace, a common faith in the person and work of your son Jesus as you died in our place. We're buried and rose again so that if we'd put our trust in you having paid for our sins and taken care of our sin penalty, that we could know for sure that we are going to spend eternity with you, that we are your children, and that you'll never let us go. Pray that we would just enjoy this time that we could spend here together for this church fellowship night. Thank you for all of the food that you've even provided for us to eat afterwards here. Pray that you'd give me wisdom as I speak as we look at this next little section of the book of Acts. Pray that uh, you'd give the young people attention so that they could try to take something away for, from this that they'd remember and maybe even apply to their lives. Pray that this church could be uh, effective at ministering to each other and also a bright light to the darkness around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the title of this little devotion tonight is They Reject Christ. They Reject Christ. You see, people desire acceptance perhaps more than anything else. So if you think about yourself, you're no exception to it. I would say that while it may not automatically be the number one thing that people desire, it's certainly on the top five of any list, and it's probably first on most people's list of the things that they're really seeking after to fit in, to, to be accepted by others around them. And every person on the planet wants to be included, approved of, noticed, and loved. These are all synonyms in many, synonyms in many ways for this idea of wanting to be accepted. And that's true at a core spiritual level. It's true on a physical and emotional and relational level as well. People don't want to be excluded. They want to be accepted and included by the people that are around them. That's a part of what's so awesome about being able to come together even as those who have a common faith in Jesus Christ where we can come together and fellowship with each other, have this community of believers that we're a part of here at this local church. There's something very beautiful about that. Now that all, of course, stems from the idea of being accepted in the beloved all starts from Christ's acceptance of us and how he looked at us in our sin. And instead of focusing on our sin, in our inadequacy, in our shortcomings, he focused instead on the love that he had for us and he did something about our sin. And so when he died on the cross, it wasn't for his sin, it was for our sin so that if we would put our faith in him, we could be born into his family. Now, everyone who does that becomes a part of that same family. That's what it means to have brothers and sisters in Christ. So young people, as you look at other people who have put their faith in what Jesus did for them, whether they're old or tall, I I made a sign for tall and then I said old, whether they're tall or short or old or young, whether they're big or small, whether whatever their personalities are like, those are all your brothers and sisters. And that's what we can celebrate even getting together tonight. But 
Everybody wants to be a part of something. And so it's so amazing that God not only gave us, in some ways, the emotions and feelings that we have, including that desire to want to be accepted, but he gave us a way to be accepted, both by him and by the one and others that he put in our life. And you think about what's the opposite of being accepted. Anyone have an idea? Being rejected, right? And so nobody wants to be rejected. That's hard for everybody. No matter who they are, that's a difficult thing to deal with, rejection. And that's a part of life. Not everybody will accept you. And that's why having that be your focus, the acceptance of man, the praise of man, the, how people think about you, should not be your priority. That should be secondary to finding your identity in what God thinks about you, how he sees you, what you mean to him. And so that's where you should find your identity first and foremost, but that's not the point we're trying to bring out here primarily tonight. Now, interestingly, when you think about acceptance and rejection, it has more to do with what or who you are identified or associated with than it has to do with you personally. Now, think about that. When you're accepted as a part of something, it usually has a lot to do with an association or being identified with something. And I could think about a number of different examples, but that could be true about if you're going to fit in or be a part or be accepted in something. It's because you're doing something very similar or you've joined in the same association as some other group of people. It can be something really formal like if you want to be accepted on the swim team, I'll look at some of my swimming family over here. If you want to be accepted on the swim team, you'll do what? You'll join the swim team. Now, not everyone on the swim team might be accepted in exactly the same way. There still might be cliques within that swim team, but every single person who joined the swim team and gets on the bus to be on the swim team and puts on the uniform of the swimmer, which is a swimsuit, uh, and then puts on a warm-up or whatever on top of that, they all are now a part of something that they have in common. So they're accepted as part of the swim team. Now, is it because of anything's unique about them really? No, it's because they're identified or associated with something and so they're accepted because of that. I could give you another example, maybe that's less official. If you were to be somebody who was interested in the same thing as someone else, some of the car guys out there, are some of you kids interested in mechanical things, cars? Do you like cars and trucks and vehicles? Do some of you like that kind of stuff? Yeah, some of you have whole bins of it that you leave out around the house for your parents to f- trip to their death on, right? And so you like those cars and you like those trucks, you have an interest in them. But what happens if you go to a car show that attracts a lot of people who are interested in, in cars? Are you accepted then when you come to the car show? To some extent, you are. Not because of who you are, but just because you have a common interest as everyone else that's there. And so there's sort of a camaraderie there, even though it's not official or formal. It's just because you have this common interest. Well, when it comes to matters of faith, the world ultimately, we've already looked in chapter 3, they hate the Christian because they hate Jesus Christ. So an extension of that is they reject the Christian, because they reject Christ. And Paul is going to get into this in the 25th chapter of Acts. So what we're going to be looking at tonight is this idea that if you are identified with Jesus Christ, and if the world in general opposes Christ, then by definition they're going to oppose you because they oppose 
him. And it's just an extension of that same general idea. The psychological term, if you want to learn a a fancy thing, kids, tonight, it's called transference. The idea of transference is that because you'll take your hatred for somebody and you'll apply it to somebody else. And so if Christ isn't here to hate specifically, if they have a hatred for Christ, then the next best thing that they can do is to hate those who are identified or associated as loving Christ. And so who are those people supposed to be, kids? Who are the people who are supposed to be known for loving Jesus? What do we call them? Christians, right? Christ ones. And so the people who are supposed to be known for loving Christ, the world then naturally rejects those people because they reject Christ and you're now associated with him. And we saw, again, a very similar thing in chapter 23, but I want to bring it out again tonight because I was fascinated by verses 18 and 19 of chapter 25 here. And so we're going to go relatively quickly. I'm going to try to keep this shorter than, than last time. But we're going to summarize. We're going to start with a little bit of background. So for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been going through this story primarily of the Apostle Paul's life here in this latter half of the book of Acts. And it started out by telling the story or the history of the early church, a little bit more focused on Peter, and then it kind of switched here to to Paul for these many last chapters we've been looking at. But by way of background, Paul had gone to Jerusalem knowing that in going to Jerusalem, he would face a lot of danger there. And when he got to Jerusalem, he had been warned that that would be the case and that ended up happening where the Jews that were there because they had rejected Christ, they rejected Paul and they sought to kill him. And they were really passionate about their desire to kill him. And so two different times the Romans had to the Roman authorities that ruled over the area, they had to come and save the apostle Paul. They saved his life. The second time though, they brought him to a town called Caesarea where he was then brought before the governor of that whole region. And does anyone remember what his name was? Caesar is the ruler of the whole country, but I didn't know that any of you would remember his name, but it started with an F. Do you know Margreta? Felix, good job. So they brought him before Felix and he had many different times that he got to talk to Felix and even Felix, his wife. And so we had talked about how God works things together for good because even in the face of things that don't seem very good, being in jail, being locked up, God allowed Paul to have this ministry to these people he probably wouldn't have been in contact with. So he had these opportunities to tell Felix about who is Jesus and what had Jesus done for him. And we don't know how Felix responded to that, but we know that Felix had the general impression that Paul was innocent of the charges brought against him, but he was too much of a coward to stand up to the Jewish leaders, and so he didn't let Paul go, and we know that Paul ended up spending approximately two years in prison here in Caesarea. All right, well, where we ended last time, Felix was going to get replaced by a new governor of that area, and this new guy's name is Festus, so they had fun names back then, Felix and Festus. So Festus is going to take over. Now, that's what verses 1 through 17 of chapter 25 are really talking about. I'm going to let you read that for devotions on your own. But this new guy takes over, and so I'm just going to summarize what happened. The new guy takes over, and what do the Jewish people do? They pick up right where they left off. 
they go to this new governor and they right away try to kill Paul again. They try to set up the governor to say, won't you just please bring Paul from Caesarea where he's carefully guarded? Won't you bring him back to Jerusalem? Because along the way, they have this plot again to kill Paul. They still want to do that. Well, thankfully for Paul's life, I guess, Festus doesn't agree to that. And so Paul stays put. But he has another mini trial of sorts. And there's been a number of these different little legal trials where the governors or the people responsible are hearing what the accusations are against Paul. So it's sort of more of the same thing. The Jewish leaders keep making all of these really terrible accusations against Paul about how he's causing all this trouble, but they don't actually have any evidence or proof of it. And so that's the same thing that happens again. It's, it's sort of like the same thing but a different day sort of a scenario. So the Apostle Paul, in this first part of chapter 25, he says, you know what, I'm kind of over this, having these hearings that prove my innocence, but I don't get set free. So he says, I want to go see, what did you call him, the guy who's in charge of everything? Caesar. I want to go see Caesar because as a Roman citizen, he had the right to go have his case heard by the top guy which happened to be the emperor or Caesar. So Paul says, I want to go see Caesar. He invokes his legal rights to do that. But before that happens, we're introduced to another character, and his name is King Agrippa. So King Agrippa is a great-grandson of Herod the Great. And who knows anything about Herod the Great? Calvin? Kelvin knows quite a bit about him. Now, he, he was the guy who was responsible when Jesus was born, right? Is that, you remember that part of the story? Okay. And so we have this family of people. A lot of them are named Herod. It's tough to exactly be certain about which one they're referring to. But a bunch of them are very evil people who have, they're close and they've bribed the Roman authorities so that they could be having this sort of, they call them, there's a word for it, Uh, What's it called? I wrote it down here. They're called client kings. Client kings. And that means they're not real kings. The Romans rule the whole area. The Romans, though, as people buy them off or gain favor with them, the Romans let them sort of run things as long as it falls within the Roman law. And so this is a relative of that Herod the Great, who's a great-grandson. And so he's the one who's sort of in charge of a smaller area than his great-grandfather was. We won't get into too many of those details, but he's going to come to town. And so when he comes to town, this governor, Festus, who actually in some ways has more authority than Herod, Herod's grandson here, King Agrippa, he gives him sort of a summary of what's been happening with the Apostle Paul. And so that's what he does in verses 14 through 17. So that's where we're going to pick up tonight. So we can skip through that first uh, section of the chapter, but we're going to pick up in verse 14. So after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice, who was his sister, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, means he explained to him what was going on. 
saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. He's a leftover prisoner from the last governor, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. Now, part of the reason he's telling King Agrippa this is because King Agrippa has the authority to appoint the high priest, and so he's more familiar with Jewish customs and the things that are going on with the Jews. To them I answered... It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And so he sort of summarizes a little bit about what led up to this additional hearing that he had already given the Apostle Paul, which was the second one after Felix had already sort of heard the case, after the, um, I forget what his rank was, but the, the Roman soldier had heard some of that when he first sent him off to Felix to begin with. So it was really the second time, and now this is the third time that Paul's going to have his case heard. So then let's pick up the rest of the story in verse 18. What is the ultimate accusation that's being made against Paul? Is the accusation that he has done anything that they can prove that would actually be a threat to the Romans? And the answer is no. We're going to hear this is, this is Festus sort of paraphrasing what his conclusions were in this hearing that he had with the Apostle Paul and the people who were accusing him. Verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. Now, remembering that they had been saying he was doing all these horrible things, but that's not really what they were upset about. Even Festus can see this. What are they really upset about? Look at verse 19. But had some questions against him. What was against him? About their religion and about a certain person. What was his name? Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So what was the thing that they were really upset about? Jesus and the teaching about how Jesus had died, had been buried, and how he rose again. Now the Jewish people knew that that could only be true of one who was God's son, God himself. What was the number one thing that the Jews were rejecting about Jesus? Do you know? Okay. That he was God himself. That was good. That's what they were rejecting. They did not believe that Jesus was actually who he said he was, that he was God himself, that he was the Son of God, that he was co-equal with God. In fact, when he said, if you've seen the Father... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They wanted to stone him for that because he made it really clear that the Father and myself were one. I and the Father are one, he said. Well, they didn't like that because they had already rejected him. Why? Because he wasn't bringing them what they were looking for. He wasn't bringing them the physical prosperity and victory over the Romans that they were looking for. He was first telling them that I can't bring that until you respond to me in faith and put your confidence in who I am and what I've done for you or what I'm going to do for you, that I'm the Savior of the world. They wouldn't accept that. They rejected that because he wasn't what they expected. 
And so that's what had ultimately happened. And this proves that that's what they really hated about Paul. It's not that Paul had been really doing anything wrong. It's not that he'd been steering up trouble like they said he was. It was that Paul was preaching about this unique God-man Jesus who had died for the sins of the world and had been buried and rose again. That's what they were upset about. And so that's what Festus is summarizing as he's talking to King Agrippa. He's telling him there is really no case against this guy except for that he's preaching this thing about this guy, Jesus, that the Jewish people disagree with. So the underlying issue, what is the underlying issue? And we'll try to wrap this up here. The underlying issue was the rejection of the person and work of Jesus. It wasn't Paul that these people were rejecting. It wasn't Paul that these people hated. They hated him as an extension of Jesus. They hated him for what he was saying about Jesus. They rejected him for what he was proclaiming about the love of God as manifest in a person, as shown in a person, as demonstrated in a person, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the unique work of Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners and the sufficiency of that work to free men from the consequences or the debt that was owed for their sin. They didn't like that. They didn't want Paul to be proclaiming that. So this is my advice for tonight, kids. When people reject you, because you talk about Christ, they're not really rejecting you. When they hate you because you're bold to speak about Jesus, they're not really hating you. Just like we talked about in chapter 3, they're hating Christ. They're rejecting Christ, and so then they're rejecting you as an extension of Christ. And we're supposed to be known as Christ's ones. So if we're known for being all about Jesus then the Bible says we're going to be rejected by those who reject him. Now, what percentage of the world rejects Jesus? How many? More than three quarters. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. It just tells us that men love darkness though rather than light. It says that the road that leads to hell is broad and there's many there be that find it. That the road that leads to eternal life is narrow. Now it's narrow because in order to get on that road you've got to let go of everything else. You have to quit trusting in anything else. You've got to let go of your pride. You have to be humble. You have to come to a point where you say, I can't save myself. I must depend on Jesus to do for me what I could never do for myself. And are people naturally proud? Do people naturally think more highly of themselves than they ought to? The Bible tells us they do. A person by nature doesn't want to put his trust in Christ alone. They want to, put, they want to have an approach where they say, it's Christ plus what I can do for Christ. And that's not the gospel. The gospel means you have to let go of your traditions. You have to let go of your religious works. You've got to let go of your human effort. You have to let go of trying to make yourself acceptable to God and say, the only reason I'm acceptable to God is because he loved me and he gave himself for me to die in my place to pay for the sins that I could never pay for. And so rejection of Jesus equals rejection of his followers. You see that? And so if you never face any of that, it's because people don't know that you really stand for Christ.
Let me say that again, kids. Wake up for a second. Look at me. All kids, look at me. Hey, some of my nephews, look at me. If nobody has ever given you any kind of pushback, it's because you're not talking about Jesus enough. If you talk about Jesus a lot, people are going to be running for the doors. They're going to be rejecting you and distancing themselves for you from you, and they're going to be coming up with all kinds of creative names for you. Like, that's a crazy person. And we're going to see that that's what King Agrippa says to Paul when Paul presents the gospel to him. We'll get that next time. He says, you're a lunatic if you believe that. And that's what the world will do. So if everybody's always accepting you, that's not a bad thing. That can be a good thing. But if they're always accepting you universally, nobody's ever pushing back, nobody's ever distancing themselves from you, I promise you it's because you're not talking about Jesus enough. Okay, that's just an aside. Now, how should we feel about being rejected for Jesus' sake? Should that make us sad? It, it can, I'm gonna tell you, be, be honest with you kids. To be rejected can make you sad. But when you think about it for a minute, should you be sad? Should you be sad about it? No, you should be happy. You should say it's a blessing to be rejected for Jesus because that means I'm standing tall for him. I'm shining my light for him. And I want to end by sharing two verses with you. These are both from Luke. But they say this, in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, it says this, he who hears you, meaning the people who are talking about Jesus, they hear me. So by listening to you, they're listening to me because I've given you the message of proclaiming or speaking about me. They say, he who rejects you, they're really rejecting me. That's what my point of the message is. They reject Christ. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting him. It says, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Not only are they rejecting Christ, but they're rejecting the Father too at the same time. Luke in chapter 6, verse 22, he says this. This is how you should feel about being rejected because you're identified or associated as being a friend of Jesus. This is how you should feel. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. That's what it means to be rejected, to be excluded. So when they exclude you and they hate you, you're blessed because of that. And when they revile you, meaning they they can't stand you, and when they cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Who's the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus, right? The Son of Man is Jesus. So if people are rejecting you and they're despising you because you're a mean person, that's not what Jesus wants. He wants them to reject you, exclude you, hate you, revile you, cast your name as evil, say bad things about you because of Jesus' sake. Do you see that, kids? All right, so here's the thing. Every faithful ambassador or person who's a spokesperson for Jesus, they should face some pushback and hostility. Don't be surprised by that. Learn to expect it. Learn to embrace it. And ultimately remember, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could look at Acts chapter 25. Thank you for even this reminder that it's not really us as your spokespeople, your ambassadors, your friends. It's not us they're rejecting. It's you they're rejecting. Let us find peace. Let us find comfort. 
Let us be excited and even find blessing in the times that we're rejected for your name's sake. Pray that we wouldn't be rejected of man because of evil doing on our part, because we're not kind, because we're not compassionate, because we're not loving, because we're not forgiving, because we're selfish. Pray that that wouldn't be the reasons, those wouldn't be the reasons that we're rejected by men. Pray that we would be rejected by men because we talk about you too much. We point to you too much. We live for you too much. Pray that that would be true of each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.